So let's just bow our heads really quickly and have a, have a short prayer together. Dear Father in heaven, as we open your word, I pray that you'll simply use me, Lord, as a tool in your hand. Speak to us now. Come down and speak to us through your word, through the story of Stephen. May we walk away from this place with such a deeper love for you, but most of all, a better understanding of your love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's begin in Acts chapter 6. Even though we're looking at Acts 7 today, we're going to begin in Acts 6 to get a bit of a context into the trial of Stephen. Acts chapter 7 particularly is dealing with the trial of Stephen by the Sanhedrin or the Jewish nation. So, in Acts chapter 6 we pick up here uh, with a description of Stephen and more so the trial or the charges that are laid against Stephen by the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders of the time. And in Acts chapter 6, verses 8, we here get a little description or a, a look into Stephen's life. And it says, And Stephen, full of what? Faith and power did great wonders and signs among the people. Here, Luke is giving us a very basic description, but sufficient into the life of Stephen. Stephen is simply a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, doing great signs amongst the church, working for God. And in verse 9 it says, And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, or Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. So some of the other Jews or the, the other um, Greek Jews as well would come and they would dispute with Stephen about what he was saying. And in verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They tried to argue with him about this Jesus that he was proclaiming. They were trying to dispute with him by pulling out the, the law and trying to explain the prophecies to say that Jesus was not the Messiah. But everything they threw at Stephen, because he was connected with the Holy Spirit, he was able to resist their sayings and to show them that Jesus is the Messiah of the Scriptures. So how do they respond? Verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak what? Blasphemies. To speak blasphemies or blasphemous words against who? Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false who? Witnesses. Isn't it interesting that all through the Bible that you know, it's just like Daniel was with the Persians or Jesus before Pilate. Many of the people that, that when you're presenting the truth, the, really on, the only real way that they can try and get you is to provide false accusations. It's interesting. So Stephen is brought before the council. Here he stands before the council. And let's look at the charges as we look at the trial of Stephen. So we see it says, We've heard him say that just Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So if we look at the charges, here we have three main key charges laid against Stephen. Three main charges. These charges are first against Moses or the teachings of Moses. They're saying that the things that Stephen is preaching, that, that this message of Jesus is he's trying to change the teachings and the traditions that Moses has passed on to us. The second thing is they say that he's preaching against the law of Moses or the law of God that he's trying to do away with. And remember, these were false accusations against Stephen. And the third thing was that he was preaching that what would be destroyed, the temple. Now, if you're a Jew, these are the three key pillars or the, the central ingredients to what it means to be a Jew. So these three charges that they laid against Stephen were no small thing, but this was a major allegation against Stephen. This is the setting, this is the context for what we move into, into chapter 7, the trial of Stephen. Stephen is brought, a man of God, a man of faith, and standing there before the religious leaders of Israel, all the scholars, the PhD professors of theology were brought to deal with this 
uprise, to deal with this heretic, so to speak. In a sense, they were saying that what Stephen was preaching was heresy. Now, if you look at, the, if you look at a common definition of heretic, just notice this for a second. A heretic is a person holding a, an opinion at, at odds with what is generally what? Accepted. So really to them, as they're standing up there, as the Sanhedrin is standing, looking down at this man, Stephen, simply only a deacon of the church. He holds no major degrees or major learning, but this man was eloquent, was powerful with his wisdom of the scriptures. Yet they're standing there looking at him and saying, basically you're a heretic. What you're saying is against what we stand for. You have a wrong perception of Moses. You don't understand the law and you certainly don't understand the temple and the services of the temple. That's the accusations. They're saying that you don't understand these things. You're a heretic. But as we move through chapter 7, as we look at this defense that Stephen gets, we're going to see that Stephen knew the Moses, the law, and the temple better than they did. In fact, he goes on to draw out the meaning of these very individuals and these very things to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the center of all these things. This is the context. This is the setting for the trial that we're going to look in here today at chapter 7. So let's move to chapter 7, and here we look at basically the defense is broken up into five sort of key sections. Now, time will be hard for us to press to go through all of these, so I'm going to draw out probably the, what I consider the key points that Stephen is trying to draw out in his defense. So we look here, he goes on to talk about the promise of Abraham. He talks about the deliverance through Joseph and Moses, the apostasy of Israel, and the rejection of the Messiah. So we pick up here, looking in chapter 7, at Stephen's response. Chapter 7, verse 1, and it says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? Are these accusations so, Stephen? Stephen responds in verse 2, and he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Stephen pauses, Stephen begins by addressing the Sanhedrin with respect. Secondarily, he dresses God with respect. He says, I'm no heretic. I respect, my, I respect the Sanhedrin. I respect the Jewish leadership. And most of all, I have a reverence and a respect for God. Straight away, this changes their perspective to other heretics that have come before them. He gives this respect. But what I want to focus on here is that what Stephen does is Stephen draws out of the history of Israel particular individuals, particular key points in their history over the hundreds of years of the Jewish nation. He draws out particular figures or narratives or stories or things that have happened to show them the key points of his gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. And we pick up here at what he's saying in verse 8. He goes on to talk about Abraham and the patriarchs, and we pick up in verse 8, Abraham begets Isaac, Isaac begets Jacob, and Jacob begets the 12 sons or 12 patriarchs. And here's where he really focuses in. Here he pulls the magnifying glass out. He says, Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 who? Patriarchs. And with this setting, he pauses here to draw them in to show here is our fathers, the very birth of the nation of Israel. Here we have the 12 patriarchs, the, the pillars that will become the, uh, the nation of Israel, promised by God. And then he moves into the story of Joseph. And let's pick up in verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Isn't that interesting? And of anything he could have talked about, he draws right into the story. They're saying to, saying to Stephen, Stephen, you don't understand our history. You don't understand Moses. You don't understand the teaching. But Stephen goes back and says, let me reiterate to you the history and how it should be properly viewed. So he takes him to the story of Joseph and he says there were the 12 patriarchs, the 12 brothers. And Joseph was a special child from God. He was, he was given by God to deliver the nation of Israel. Is that right? But what did the patriarchs or Israel do to Joseph? 
Did they accept him? What did they do? They betrayed him. They rejected Joseph. It says here, and the patriarchs becoming what? What's that word? Envious sold Joseph into Egypt. Is there anybody else that we can think of who was a deliverer of Israel that was sold with 30 pieces of silver? What's Stephen trying to do, do you think? What is he trying to do by drawing out of their history? Who's he, probably, who's he trying to point them to? Jesus. To Jesus. The patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into slavery. But notice what he does with the language here. But who was with him? God was with him and did what? Delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of who? Pharaoh. So here we have Joseph, who was called by God to deliver Israel, yet how did Israel respond? They were envious. They rejected Joseph, cast him into slavery, but God was with him. And God took him and exalted Joseph to the highest position, just below Pharaoh in Egypt. Why? As we read on. He made him governor over Egypt and over all his house. Now notice what happens. Now a what? Famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and our fathers found no what? Sustenance. So now who was in trouble? The nation of? Israel. So Israel rejects Joseph. God is with him. Exalts him to a position and now nation needs what? The nation of Israel needs deliverance. In verse 12, But when Jacob heard that there was a grain in Egypt, he sent it out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people in all. So here in the story of Joseph... As Stephen has glanced through the key aspects of the story of Joseph's life, he says that Joseph was rejected by who? Israel. He was exalted by who? God. And then God used Joseph to deliver who? Israel. He's saying, you're saying to me, Sanhedrin, brothers and fathers, that I don't understand the history of our nation. You're saying, I'm a heretic, but let me take you back to show you the true narrative of our people, of of our history that God has done. You talk about Joseph. Joseph was rejected by us. Our fathers rejected him. But God was with him and made him a deliverer and delivered our people out out of sure death, out of famine. He goes on to talk about another person. Shortly after Joseph, he says, Of course, the people came to the land. They lived there for over 400 years and prospered. They they grew large in in Egypt. But a pharaoh came. He did not know Joseph and enslaved the people. But who did God send to deliver them? Moses. Moses. And we pick up here in verse 23. Verse 23, he says, Now when he was 40 years old, speaking of Moses... It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Moses is now in the house of Pharaoh. He's 40 years old. And notice the language that Stephen draws on here. And seeing one of them, this is Moses seeing the children of Israel, seeing one of the the Jewish people in slavery. And seeing one of them, what? Suffer wrong. He defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the who? The Egyptian. What was in Moses' mind? Moses believed that he was there to deliver who? Israel. He was a defender of Israel. He believed that his call in his life was to deliver his people from this position. Verse 25, for he supposed, notice what Stephen says, for he, Moses, supposed that his brethren would have understood, would have what? Understood Understood that God would, what's that word? Deliver them by his hand that they did not what Stephen is trying to show them you're telling me that I don't understand Moses yet your very fathers the Jewish nation rejected Joseph who was a deliverer and Moses who was a deliverer as well 
the history of the Jewish nation is God has sent deliverer after deliverer have responded in kind, have responded by rejecting the deliverer that God has sent. And notice verse 26. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and he tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did this, his neighbor wrong, pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian? How did Moses respond? Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian. Joseph was called to be delivered, but he was rejected by Israel. God exalted him, called on him to be that deliverer, and he delivered Israel. Years later, Moses, rejected by Israel, Moses knew that he was going to be a deliverer. He knew that God had called him to this purpose. And as he went to the children of Israel, as they were fighting amongst each other, he said, brethren, don't do this. And they said, who are you to be judge and ruler over us? And they rejected Moses. They rejected him. But Moses fled. But was God with, was, was God with Moses? God was with Moses. You know, it's so easy in this life when we're rejected by people, the people closest to us, the people that we're trying to help, how easy it is to give up, how easy it is to just walk away, how easy it is to say, they don't want this. Why bother? But when we look into the scriptures, as we pour through the pages of scriptures, God tells us not to give up. God tells us to keep going. God tells us that if we're called to go forth. We live in a world today of people who are rejecting the very same message, yet God says, keep going. But God comes to Moses in the burning bush, and he calls him to go to be a deliverer. He's exalted by God in verse 32, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have seen the oppression of my people. Go and deliver them. Notice Peter's, uh, Stephen's words in verse 35. This Moses, this Moses whom they, what's that word? Rejected. What's that word again? Rejected. Do you think Stephen's trying to draw something out in these stories? This Moses, who the nation of Israel rejected, saying, hey, who made you ruler and a judge, is the one that God sent to be a ruler and a what? Deliverer, Deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Stephen is trying to show them that by their very own history, as they stand there judging Stephen, saying, you are rejecting Moses, you are rejecting the law and the temple, you don't understand it. And Stephen stands there as he goes through the narrative of their history, as he's talking about the great men that they revere, that they've basically turned into idols. Is it just... As you and your fathers before you had rejected Joseph, rejected Moses, you've rejected Jesus as well. The question is, who's really on trial here today? You know, when you're with God, when you're with God, when you're right with God, no human trial has the right to truly judge you. When you're standing with God, Stephen was standing there as a righteous man before God, blameless in the sight of the law, blameless in the sight of God. He stood with Christ. These men could say nothing. He was showing to them that the things that they had revered, the temple, the building, the stones, the gold, all the things they revealed, he says, these are the very things that you're misunderstanding. You say you understand Moses and the law, but 
Jesus is the center of the story. He's the center of the narrative. He's the center of our history. He's the center of who we are as the Jewish nation. Notice what it says in Acts of the Apostles. He made plain his own what? To God and to the Jewish faith. But while he showed that the law in which the Jews trusted for what? Had not been able to save Israel from what? He connected Jesus Christ with all the Jewish history. Is it possible that in our own lives we get so caught in the practices of religion, the practices of doing things, that we miss the Christ of it all? You can do a lot of stuff, but I'm going to tell you right now that religion at its heart, Christianity at its heart, is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, 3. This is what? Eternal life, that we might know thee, the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. That we might know thee. We might know you. We might have a relationship with you that burns in our heart. Stephen understood the law. He understood the history of the Jewish nation because he saw it through the lens of Christ. It's Jesus. It's Jesus all the way through. I like the way Altwell says it. He says, speaking about the Jewish nation, he says, at the time Stephen spoke... The nation of Israel regarded their possession of the what? As an end in itself. And they were blind to their true need to depend on God and cry out for spiritual redemption. A redemption which God had worked in who? You know, God is the, the same message as for every one of us. We can be going to church for 40, 50, it doesn't matter how many years, but we can still miss the point. I'm telling you right now, it's not about what you wear, it's about who you know. Do you know Jesus? That's what we have to ask ourselves every day. That's the heart of what it means to be here today. I come here, you don't have to force me to come here. Do you guys feel like that as well? Do you have to be forced to come? I come here in my free time because I love Jesus so much. And I want to come here, I want to sing about him, I want to listen to him preached. I just want to praise his name. And I don't do it just one day a week, amen? Because a relationship is consistent, right? What's going to happen if I just only spend time with Jesus on Saturday? What's going to happen if I only spend one day of quality time with my wife? How will that go? I'll be in trouble. <laughs> Big trouble, Terry. Big trouble. Remind me. Stephen is pointing out to them that in their very own history, that as you claim to be the followers of Moses, and Joseph and the law and all the things that God gave, Stephen says you have missed the point. Because it was Christ in that burning bush. It was Christ who gave that law to Moses. It was Christ in the cloud that took our father's through the 40 years in the wilderness. It was Christ who sustained us. It was Christ who gave us strength. It was Christ who fed us with manna through the wilderness. It was Christ, it was Christ, it was Christ. And the very Christ that you claim, or the very God that you claim to serve, has stood before you, and you punched him in the face, and you ripped out his beard, and you said, crucify him. You missed the point. The history of Israel is a history of rejecting, rejecting the deliverers that God has sent. And the greatest deliverer has come right before you, stood right in front of you. And you have rejected him, just as our fathers rejected Joseph, and just as our fathers rejected Moses. But the love of God endures well beyond, and God still delivers you. God still delivers us. As we move through his sermon, his defense, he deals with objections to the law and to the temple. 
And as they're standing there and they're saying to him, didn't Jesus say that he'd destroy this temple and three days rebuild it? What is this all about? How, how dare you threaten the precious temple? How dare you threaten that building, that beautiful building? Do you know how much it cost us? What does Stephen say about this building that they revere, that they idolize so much? Notice verse 46. He says, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place. Speaking of the, our forefathers who built the temple, he says in verse 47, but Solomon built him a house. How be it? Notice his point in verse 48. How be it? The Most High does not dwell in what? What does he need to dwell in? Temples. Made with hands, as the prophet said, quite in the Old Testament, he says, Heaven is my throne, God says, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? We can get so caught up in the physical, material things of religion and forget that you cannot put God in a box. God's going to do this. No, no, no. God, what do you want to do? Your ways are mysterious. Your ways are beyond my comprehension. Show me your ways. The children of Israel had become so blinded, so blinded, so blinded. But their lust for power, their greed, that they had forgotten who they were. You know, it reminds me of something in the Bible. In Revelation, God gives a description of the Christian church. Now, don't miss this point, because he's talking about us now. Are you ready? Do you want to feel bad? <laughs> he goes through the history of the church, the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, etc. He goes through the history of the Christian church, and he gets to our time, and he says, here's a description of us today. You know what he says? You think you're rich. You have goods, hospitals, and health centers, and look at all the things we have but you're blind and you're naked. You think you have need of nothing, amen? We can get so comfortable that we miss the point. We miss it. It's about this right here. It's about you and I, and it's about him. Who cares if this burns down, right? Who cares about the physical, the money, accoutrements of life? God is saying to us, focus. Don't miss the point. Don't miss it. Ask yourself the question today, where are you with God? What is your relationship like with God today? Do you love him more than anything? How's your relationship with God today? As Stephen was preaching these words, he was there looking at the Sanhedrin. I mean, these were all the scholars, the PhD, PhDs of, of the time, millionaires of their day, wealthy people all in front of him. Can you imagine this message? And he's preaching this message saying, God cannot be contained in the buildings. But in that moment, he realizes that as he's preaching this history, his defense comes to an abrupt end because he realizes that as he looks at the people, as he looks at the Jewish nation, the representatives of the Jewish nation, as he looks at them, he realizes that their hearts are hardened, their eyes are blinded, they're not listening, they're not getting it, they don't want to know it. And he knows that what he's about to say are his last words. Can you imagine? They've killed before, and they're about to do it again. Stephen is standing there. He could have cowardly said, oh, look, brothers, it's, it's okay. It's No. He was filled with the Spirit of God, and he didn't care what man could do to him. He only cared what God could do to him. I can tell you today, friends, that you cannot stand before the Sanhedrin until you've bowed low before the King of the universe. We cannot stand against our enemies, against the people that oppress us, until we've spent time alone with God. The secret to being a saint is being a saint in secret. And as Stephen stands there, he pauses for that second. He knows, he knows his fate is sealed. 
He knows that these are his last words. And in verse 51, and in verse 51, he finishes his sentence. He finishes his defense. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always what? Resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. These were his last words, standing before the Sanhedrin. With tears in his eyes, he pleaded for them. Don't reject the Messiah. This is your last chance. This is your last chance. Don't reject him. How do they respond? Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That means they were under conviction. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. They were too far gone. The nation of Israel had blinded themselves to the point where the message of Christ, when all of its clarity was right there, the history of Israel. No more beautiful, no more powerful sermon could have been given. None. It was all the evidence was there for them. And they rejected it. Stephen. knew that these were his last words. Notice what the book Acts of the Apostles says. When Stephen reached this point, there was a tumult among the people. And when he connected Christ with the prophecies as, and spoke as he did of the temple, the priest, pretending to be horror-stricken, rent his robe. To Stephen, this act was a signal that his voice would soon be silenced forever. He saw the resistance that met his words and knew that he was giving his last testimony. What would Stephen do? Would he cower? No. Because he loved God more than the praises of men. He loved God more than the wealth or anything these men could offer him. He loved God more than life itself. No greater love hath this that a man laid down his life for his what? Friends. Stephen here stood in the full maturity of the Christian life, persecuted for his faith, persecuted for the message that he presents. In the cruel faces about him, the prisoner read his fate, but he did not waver. For him, the fear of death was gone. For him, the enraged priests and the excited mob had no what? I wonder, the reason that we cower so much is because we care what people think more than what God thinks. Is that right? Jesus says, if you love your father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. This is eternal life, that you love God, that you know God, that you have a relationship with God that surpasses Every relationship on earth, every material possession on earth, everything else on earth. And that's not just something we talk about, it's something we live. True Christianity is love, love, love for God. Stephen stood. Before his accusers, as they grabbed him, they ran, they grabbed him, they punched him, they threw him out of the city, dragging him along, but he was at peace. And as they threw him to the ground, they picked up stones and they stoned him to death. You know, it's interesting that when you look at the Christian life, Jesus standing on the Mount of Beatitudes, he tells us the chronology of Christian life. He says, blessed, he gives the Beatitudes. You might be able to finish this. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the first step. Then he goes through the steps. As he goes through, the very first step of the Christian life is blessed are the poor, to recognize your condition, to recognize that you need a savior. Then you can take the next step and the next step. And can anyone know what's the height of the Christian maturity? Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that interesting? The height of... The point where you know that you're really living for God is blessed are those who are what? Persecuted. Because when you're living for Christ, when you're living that life, when you're living that purity, and when you're preaching that truth, it is an unpopular message in a world that doesn't want it. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. To truly be a Christian is to put God ahead, God before, God in front of everything else in our life. And you cannot stand against the the attacks of the enemy while you've still got one foot in the world and another foot in Christianity. You're either all or nothing. Maybe we've strayed today. Maybe you're sitting here today. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but slowly your foot has started to creep over to the things of the world and you're getting caught up over here. Maybe you're listening to things and doing things and maybe it's bit by bit and you're justifying it and you're coming over here and God is speaking to you today and he's saying, come back, put me at the center of your life again. It's about focus. It's about keeping focused on God. Isaiah 26 verse three says, the Lord will keep you in perfect peace. What kind of peace? Perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Focus on Christ. Stephen, in the face of this anger, this mob, this mob that's acting more like beasts than men, as they run at him with one accord, as they run at him with fury and spitting anger and gnashing their teeth at him, they can't stand the message, silence him, they're stopping their ears, I don't want to hear the name of Jesus again, and they beat him and they cast him out, they pick up stones and they cast one stone after another. At Stephen, how does Stephen respond? In the midst of this suffering, Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In the midst of our persecution, when it feels like everyone around us is saying things about us, it may not be physical stones, but maybe it's verbal stones, maybe it's financial, whatever it is, you're going to come under persecution for your faith, for what you stand for. What are those stones in your life today? Know this, that assuredly as Jesus was there for Stephen, he's there for you. Now here's the question. We see Jesus all through the Bible in heaven. We're doing what? What am I doing? Sitting. But in this moment, Stephen, as they're all beating him, coming up, he looks up and he sees Jesus doing what? Why is this? Because Jesus' heart is so connected with us that in that moment, he's so wanting to step in that he stands up for Stephen. He's there for Stephen. His heart is connected with Stephen. He stands up to guide and to strengthen his servant. And the difficulties of your life, know this for sure, that if your eyes are focused here, you'll give up. And if your eyes are focused above, you won't. Because Jesus is standing, looking at you right now in your life. He knows what you're going through. The Bible says he knows what we've been through because he went through it. He went through it. And he sympathizes with us. Every single thing in your life, he sympathizes with you. When you cry, he cries. He's there. He's connected. Jesus stands in that moment with Stephen in his pain and his suffering. The first Christian martyr the first Christian martyr. He stands up for Stephen. 
The second point, which is uh, it's, it's worthy of note, is that, that when Jesus stands up in the Bible, it signifies judgment. It signifies the end of something. You'll see in Daniel 12, Michael stands up for the people. It's the end of something. We see uh, through the Bible, this is the case. Now, I'll just make this point in passing. The children of Israel at this point, the nation of Israel had been given a time of probation by God. A time of what? Probation by God. All the way back in the time of Daniel, in the 5th, 6th century BC, before Christ, Daniel had received a vision of God. At this time, the Babylonians had destroyed Israel. The Babylonians had enslaved the people. The nation of Israel was basically over. And Daniel's praying to God and says, God, what are you going to do about the nation of Israel? What about the covenant you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What will you do, God? And God gives him a prophecy and says, 490 years are given to the nation of Israel to get your act together, to make reconciliation with God, to get right with God. 490 what? Years. That's a long time, isn't it? Is God merciful? So 490 years is given. Now we know according to prophecy that this takes us to a particular year. And guess what year it is? Exactly this year. What do they have to do in that 490 years? Get ready what? Get right with God. The Bible says, get ready to anoint the most holy. This is Daniel chapter 9, the 70-week prophecy. Now here stands Stephen. The first Christian martyr before the official representatives of the nation of Israel. And what do they do to the message of the Messiah? Are they ready to receive it? They reject it. They reject it. And this chapter signifies a major turning point. The nation of Israel, the nation of Israel that for all these years God had been trying to use to be a light to the world, to be his vessel to preach the gospel to the world had finally sealed their own fate. And as they kill Stephen, the children of Israel, the message, the glories, the blessings that are given to them are taken and given to the Gentiles. Does that make sense? This is a major turning point in the history of Israel. As Jesus stands, it signifies the end of one thing and the beginning of another. For the nation of Israel, they are no longer God's chosen people. And the very next few chapters, Saul becomes Paul, the apostle to the who? To the Gentiles. And the nation and the message goes forward. That's why Paul says to us that if you are of Christ, then you are of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Jesus stands for Stephen. We see that God sustains us in our troubles. And notice verse 58. They cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Amongst the scholars of the, the religious elite, they had called Saul. Saul seems to have had a major part in this trial and also in the death of Stephen. Saul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, probably held several PhDs, spoke several languages. He was a very, very educated man. And he stood there as they stoned Stephen. People laid their clothes in a a sense giving consent to Saul. Well done, Saul, for what you've done. But what's really powerful about this is the words that Stephen says. He just told them they were stiff-necked, that they had rejected God, they rejected the Holy Spirit. But they noticed the language of Stephen in this moment when he's laying there and his body is broken in pieces as the stone after stone is hitting him. And the fury of the crowd and the yelling and the screaming and the anger and the cursing and and all of this and all the pain and everything that Stephen is going through Notice what Stephen says. Verse 59, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. Who was he calling on? God. And saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down as the rocks were hitting him, as his flesh was being torn apart. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, 
Do not charge them with this sin. How could Stephen say that? How could Stephen say that with such anger coming towards him, with such hate, stoning him? Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this charge against them. How, how quickly do we respond evil for evil in our own lives? I mean, someone said just this one word to us and we're straight back, right? Yet Stephen, you can stone the guy and he still prays for you. How do we get to this point in our life? How do we get to this point in our life where we can be at our workplace, amongst our family, our friends, whatever, and people are ridiculing us? People may be throwing the stones of verbal abuse, whatever it is, and we simply kneel and pray for them or say kind words back. Where does that come from? Is that natural? Stephen's words represent that he understood one key thing. Because these words were not the first time that they were spoken, amen? Who else spoke these words? Stephen understood that these same words had been said to him on the cross by Jesus. As Jesus was on the cross, Stephen's sins, Paul's sins, your sins, my sins were crucifying God. And he says, what? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That love, that mercy toward us should compel us to have a character and a love and a life that understands that how can we judge others when God is so quick to give us grace. Stephen wasn't about to say, God, look, see, condemn them, curse them. No, God, you have forgiven me. Please forgive them also. You have forgiven me. Forgive them also. The heart of the Christian, as Stephen shows us, is one who is slow to anger, but quick to love. Quick to mercy. Just as the woman who'd been caught in adultery was thrown at Jesus' feet. They had the stones that were ready to kill her. This Jesus, this God who still stands there in the heavens today, said, neither do I condemn thee, now go and sin no more. The mercy and love of God is in Stephen here. Jesus stands for us in our persecution. He sympathizes with us. He strengthens us if we're focused on him. Secondly, we see that to be loving, we have to connect to the source of love. We have to understand the love of God in our hearts to share it with others. But thirdly, it's in the midst of this persecution that we shine the brightest for God. Amen? In the midst of persecution, we shine the brightest for God. All the Bible writers understood this. Paul says in Romans 5, we glory in tribulations. We glory in what? Tribulations? James 1, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. All joy? Peter says, my brethren, count it not a strange thing when the fiery trials come upon you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice. What's wrong with these guys? They're not saying that in the midst of your trials, when your house is on fire, that you go, yay. But what they're saying is in the midst of trial in your life, in the midst of persecution, and it will happen, here's the opportunity to represent the life and the love and the glory of Christ to others. It's in this time that we glory, we reveal the character of God to others. Stephen's testimony was far greater in this moment than it would have been if he wasn't under persecution. 
We never know what God has caught for our life, whether it is this or that. I mean, just a few chapters before, Peter stood there before the very same people and God delivered him. He's still alive. Yet Stephen, before the same people, is killed. Let your will be done, God, whatever brings glory to your name. Because God understood that the death of Stephen at this moment would be far more productive than if he he was to continue to live. Why is this? Notice these words. The martyrdom of Stephen made a deep what? Impression upon some people. All who witnessed it. The memory of the signet of God upon his face. His words, which touched the very souls of those who heard them, remained in the what? Minds. Remained in their minds. Now notice this, his death was a sore trial to the church, but it resulted, it what? Resulted in the conviction of who could not efface from his memory the faith and the constancy of the martyr and the glory that had rested on his countenance. As Saul was standing there in this moment, as he was in the trial, listening to Stephen go through the history, the wisdom, he's like, this man's not learned. How does he know this? Clearly the Spirit of God is with him. But he held back his pride wizard. He's amongst the other guys. He's wanting to be honored amongst the Pharisees. But Saul was watching this man and he could not resist the conviction that God was laying in his heart as Stephen spoke to him. But his pride went forward and and as they tore their robe, he ran out and he grabbed Stephen. He threw him on the ground, stone him, kill him. But as Stephen was praying for him, it hit his heart like nothing else. Nothing else could have done that. But God knew that this impact of Stephen as he was sealed in God made more impact for Saul than anything else. God had a plan for Saul's life. And that impression, those words, as this bloody mess was on the ground, as Stephen was crying, he says, Lord, lay this charge not against them. That struck a chord in Saul's heart. Where does this love come from? And as he went through the days and weeks that followed, we see in the chapter, he went, he still persecuted the church. He killed Christians. But this scene came to his mind and came to his mind and he couldn't get it out of his head. He couldn't get the love of Stephen for him out of his head. It's only in chapter 9 that Saul can't resist it any longer and Jesus comes to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard to kick against the pricks. The death of Stephen converted the greatest apostle, the greatest evangelist the world ever knew. We never know what impact our lives will have. We never know what impact God will use us for, our our, our messages, our words in in the state of persecution. What are you going through right now? What trials are you facing? Are we responding with the love of Christ? Are we taking that opportunity to be a testimony, a witness for God in that moment? That should challenge us. That should challenge us. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is asleep in Jesus waiting the resurrection. Stephen is sealed in God for eternity. And here's the question I have for you, friends. Imagine the reunion. Stephen will look and go, Saul? Amen. I was praying for you in those moments. Do we love like Stephen loved? Now we never know what impact our lives will have, do we? You never know what words that we give, that the things we say, even the things we do, what impact it will have for eternity. I think that when we get to heaven, there's going to be people there we least expect, right? Amen? 
including ourselves. There's going to be people in the kingdom that you have said one thing to, you've done one thing for that made the difference. One thing. The question I have for you, are you ready to be used by God? Jesus, looking down on Stephen as he fell asleep, saw the results of the persecution, but the, exe- but the exaltation that would come through Saul, who would become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. I want you to take your connect card because as I look at this, as I look at this story, it draws three things for me in my life. This challenges me on three things. And I wrote these and I sent them to Jared. I said, Jared, could you put these on the card? Because um, I'm too lazy to put them on the card. He does it for me. These three principles is what I take from the story and I hope that you do too. The first is the great warning we take from the children of Israel who had gone so far from God that they had missed the truth when it was right in front of them. If you need a connect card, put your hand up and we'll get a connect card to you. This is a chance for us to say, God, this is between you and God. God, I want to make a commitment. I want to make a decision for you. You know, friends, it's one thing to tick these boxes, but I challenge you today to live this in your life, to go home, to pick up your word, to pray, and to connect into a relationship with Jesus Christ. First is, Lord, take away my pride so that I won't reject who? Friends, we can look at the story and go, man, those Jews, they really missed the point, but really they reflect who? Us. We can get so blinded by the world, so blinded by the things around us, that we can sit in church, we can talk about God with people, but we cannot have a relationship with him. Lord, take away my pride, my pride that holds me back in my relationship with Jesus. Lord, give me the power to love my who. It's easy to love your friends, isn't it? It's easy to love people who love us. But God says, love your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully speak against you or ridicule you. That is the command of Jesus to us. And Lord, the third point, use me to make an impact for who? For you. I challenge you, friends, every single one of you in this room has talents and gifts from God, and you are highly honored in His sight. God wants to use you in the great work of the Gospel Commission. I don't care how old you are, how smart you are, it doesn't matter, because when you have the Holy Spirit, that's all you need. God wants to use you. On the right, we give you an option every week. That if you want to receive Bible studies, maybe you're saying, God, I've been in the church, I'm baptized, but I've gone away. I want to reconnect. I want to go back into the Word. I want to say, God, speak to me, teach me, draw me back into that relationship. You can tick that box. The second option is we like to give is maybe you feel like you've drifted so far from God, you need to recommit your life in baptism. Maybe you've never been baptized and you want to say, God, I want to be cleansed of my sin. I want to say, I love Jesus Christ. That's what it is. I love Jesus. The third option is you may want to lead a small group. It's a great ministry that we're getting going here. And if, that's, if God has put that in your heart, as you heard the testimony of Terry and Caroline and others and John and the great work and the great blessings that they're receiving in a small group, that's something that you can tick as well. And also, if you want to learn how to give Bible studies, we have training coming up for that as well. On the back, just as important, is if you have prayer requests, maybe someone's sick, maybe there's someone who needs prayer, maybe you need prayer, put that on there. We take these very seriously in our pastoral staff. We sit down, we pray, we go through these. We make sure they get sent to Lance Hooper, our, our great prayer coordinator. We have an awesome prayer team in the church. They go to the prayer team as well.
I want to finish with a story as you take time to fill that out. Corrie ten Boom in her, her book, The Hiding Place, speaking about her time in Nazi occupation in World War II in the camps as she went through torture and persecution. Years later, as she was preaching, she got into preaching and experiencing the love of God. And she has this moment in her life that she writes in the book. She says, it was a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room. Can you imagine? You'd been in prison all these years and the Nazis, how would you feel? And here she was, she's just finished a sermon. She was standing out the front shaking hands and who should come out? One of the very guards who put so much torment in her life. He was the first of actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's plain blanched face, all the persecution, all the pain came back to her in her mind. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, he said, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. He said, I think that as you say, he has washed my sins, what? Away. He was this Nazi, this, this SS troop head who had persecuted her for years, who had now come to her with his hand outstretched saying, thank you for your message on forgiveness. Jesus has forgiven me, right? Hand outstretched. How would you feel? His hand was thrust out to shake mine and I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale that the need to what? Forgive. Kept my hand where? She's standing there. She just preached a sermon. The guy's got his hand out. What is she going to do? Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled up through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed in her mind, forgive me and help me to do what? Forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your what? Forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a what? A love. For this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. This is the love of God, friends. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on who? It's on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, what? The love itself. Praise God. It's not natural for us, but it's natural for him. And you can only love your enemies is if you first experience what? That Jesus has forgiven you.
heaven. We thank you for speaking to us through this story of Stephen. In the last moment of Stephen's life, Stephen stood tall for God because each day before that he'd been faithful. Lord, whatever trials and tests that we have coming up, we pray that you will prepare us now. May we have the love of God grafted into our hearts so that we may love our enemies. Father, when we look at ourselves, we see there's much work to be done. We ask for your grace and your mercy and to take away our pride and to prepare our hearts, Lord, that we may also love like Christ loved us. Father, please bless us as we leave this place and may Jesus be the center of our thoughts and our conversations today. In Jesus' name, amen.